0: Hi. This episode is a lot more historical. It's not really based on learning any kind of specific skill. It's actually a story from my dad's childhood friend, John Ungar. You might remember him from our accounting cards episode. His family was a part of this whole thing. I think it's a really interesting story, and I hope you do too. On September 6th, 1970, L.A. Flight 219 from Tel Aviv to New York took off from its second leg stop in Amsterdam. TWA Flight 741, also Tel Aviv to New York, departed its second-leg stopover in Frankfurt. And Swiss Air Flight 100 left Zurich, Switzerland, headed for New York City. In the following hours, all three would be hijacked. I'm Ari Kagan. You're listening to Things You Don't Need to Know. And this episode is about the Dawson's Field hijackings. Dawson's Field was an airstrip in the Jordanian desert built by the British Royal Air Force at the end of World War II. The exact location of the field is 32.1037 degrees north and 36.1560 degrees east. I'm looking at it on Google Earth right now. It's currently a Jadara Defense Systems electronics store, which apparently is a company that sells rocket launchers you can mount to the top of your car. I've explored various publications and internet threads. And nobody's exactly sure what Dawson's field was used for. Given the time frame, almost certainly some aspect of the war and possibly the RAF's assisted training in the Arab Legion Air Force following Jordanian independence. But all I can confirm is that it was named after Sir Walter Dawson, a senior commander in the RAF. On September 6th, 1970, two planes would land there. Now I know what you're thinking. Ari, earlier you mentioned three planes. Yes. El off Flight 219 was hijacked as it was entering British airspace by Patrick Argeo and Leila Khalid. They attempted to storm the cockpit, but Captain Yuri Barlev had other ideas, quote, I decided that we were not going to be hijacked, unquote. He proceeded to send the aircraft into a steep nosedive, knocking the hijackers off balance. Argeo then threw a grenade down the aisle, but it didn't explode, and then, this is ridiculous, one of the first-class passengers hit him over the head with a bottle of whiskey. Argeo then shot a storage Shlomo vider and was unloaded upon by the Sky Marshal. Leila Khaled was restrained by passengers and the aircraft made an emergency landing in London. Shortly after, Argeo died from his wounds and Khaled was arrested. There was actually supposed to be four hijackers on that flight, but two of them were denied boarding so they bought tickets on Pan Am Flight 93 and hijacked that one instead. PWA Flight 741 was hijacked while flying over Belgium by a male armed with a thirty-eight revolver and a hand grenade. After entering the cockpit, he held the captain at gunpoint until they landed safely in the Jordanian desert. Meanwhile, above French airspace, John Ungar, you may remember him from our Counting Cards episode, was traveling home with his family on Swiss Air Flight 100. We were returning from my grandparents
1: in Switzerland, flying from Zurich to New York, when my father noticed that something seemed to be wrong because we had made a turn and he looked out and he said, you know, the mountains look like they're on the wrong side. The mountains are supposed to be on the left. We seem to be going the wrong way. And then there was an announcement. Man introduced himself as our new captain. They paraded a flight attendant And that was the beginning of the adventure.
0: But who were these hijackers? And what did they want? Well, it didn't take long to find out because the next day on September 7th, they held a press conference.
2: The PFLP is completely responsible.
0: An in-person, live press conference that real journalists attended.
2: But who is negotiating between you and the five countries? We have very clear conditions. We want our prisoners back. Any government would hand us our prisoners. We will hand it back their prisoners.
0: The PFLP is the popular front for the liberation of Palestine. As you can probably guess, this is an incredibly complex geopolitical issue. So to help understand it, I called our resident historian and my good friend, Robbie Bendelius. Hi Robbie. What do you know about the PFLP?
3: Depends who you ask. Some people say they're freedom fighters, others say they're terrorists.
0: You can trace fighting over Jerusalem back over 2,500 years. But the Jewish-Palestinian conflict didn't really start to get serious until the beginning of the 20th century. Ottoman Empire breaks up um, because of World War I. France and England split the Middle East. They draw a lot of arbitrary lines that people really don't like. It was also around this time that the Zionist movement, an ideology with Judaism serving both as a nationality and a religion, really started to gain traction. This resulted in mass migration of Jews from Europe to what they considered to be their ancestral home, present-day Israel, at the time under British control. After World War II, after the Holocaust, Britain was like, hey-oh, who wants the state of Israel? Some Jewish people buy it. And then Palestinians were like, hey, we were here first. And they said, well, we bought it, so it's ours. Okay, let me get this straight. A lot of Jews buy land from Great Britain because they basically just claimed it, and then Britain makes a profit.
2: Yeah, the English, were like, yeah, it's not our problem anymore, it's yours.
0: The British Empire then left town, and on May 11th, 1949, the United Nations declared Israel a sovereign nation. This infuriated some of the countries in the region, but nothing changed territorially until 1967. Between June 5th and 10th, 1967, the Six Days War engulfed the region. On one side was Israel, on the other, Palestine, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. Israel ended up victorious, taking over the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. Shortly after this, the United Nations dropped Security Council Resolution 242, which stated Israel should withdraw from the territory it gained in the war and all parties recognized the rights of both Israel and Palestine. But it didn't really work. Israel continued to claim the land was theirs and build encampments. Various Palestinian freedom groups popped up, such as the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the PFLP, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. They carried out various terrorist attacks and hijackings, as well as more peaceful forms of protest. But these specific hijackings were meant to be leveraged in the release of Palestinian prisoners of war. Okay, that was a lot. And if I'm honest, it doesn't even really scratch the surface. To put it as simply as I can, some Palestinians want their comrades back, so they take a bunch of people hostage as a bargaining chip. Hopefully now you have a good enough idea of what's going on to understand the magnitude of the situation. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have a firsthand account of how the passengers were treated, what they ate, and how the conflict eventually reached resolution.
1: This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Tonight on a desert airstrip in Jordan, Palestinian terrorists are holding
2: as hostages
1: almost 200 passengers and crewmen aboard two of those
0: jetliners hijacked yesterday. One of those people is nine-year-old John Ungar.
1: Nobody panics. You know, they were like, okay, well, this is what's happening today. Some point in the early afternoon, the hijackers realized that they just had too many people. And so they decided to let all the women and children leave, but not totally leave. Earlier, they released about 100 women, children, and elderly people, acknowledging they might not be able to survive another night in the Plains.
0: They were taken to the Intercontinental Hotel in Amman, Jordan, ordinarily $120 a night, now free with the Revolution discount.
1: Most of my experience of this was at the hotel, because that's where I was for, I think it was five days, six days, something like that.
0: But some people, like John's father, Peter, were forced to remain on the planes. Uh, Most days, they let us get out for, well, uh, 10, 20 minutes. For the rest of the day, Peter and about 60 others were stuck inside an airplane fuselage. If you've ever flown before, you'll know just how kind of tight and cramped they are. Imagine being there for 5 days, but you don't even really know how long it's going to be. You're just there until the negotiations finish. Did they feed you throughout all this? I mean, what, what was the f- was the food any good? Oh, yes. Yes, they uh, uh, they fed us and one day they got excellent food from Lebanon, which makes me respect Lebanese cuisine to this day. Meanwhile, at the Intercontinental Hotel in Amman,
1: It was kind of an odd scene at this hotel because there were some uh, western reporters and they were kind of swashbuckling types you know the guys that would go to those kind of places Uh, because there was fighting they recommended that everybody slept in the corridors you sort of took the mattresses out into the corridors because you know a stray bullet could come in a window uh, but it wouldn't penetrate the wall and so uh, anyway that's just what everybody did
0: This fighting was the beginnings of the Jordanian Civil War, a conflict caused by Israel gaining control of the West Bank, which we talked about earlier. This led to many Palestinians moving deeper into Jordan and setting up bases to launch attacks on the Israelis. King Hussein saw this as his country's greatest threat to national security, and it would eventually lead to the Black September conflict in which he would lead his army against Yasser Arafat and the Palestine Liberation Organization.
1: It's kind of a siege mentality. There were Jordanian army soldiers around the hotel. King Hussein, was his, his rule was in real jeopardy. Periodically, you'd hear some fighting and they'd say, everybody go
0: down to the basement. Back in New York, his fellow middle school classmates were terrified. His future wife, Nikki, was actually in his class at the time. This is how she remembers it.
3: We were in fifth grade together, and we all came back from vacation, and John did not come back. And I remember the fifth grade teacher saying, let's all pray for John. His plane was hijacked. And this was really terrifying for all of us. Although
0: John's classmates and family friends might have been horrified by the stories they were hearing— more extreme guerrilla organizations.
1: If their demands for the release of a number of
2: commandos... From- that the responsibility lays directly on the government's concern.
0: But being in the middle of it all, John saw things a little differently.
1: I was a nine-year-old boy. I mean, it was kind of an adventure, the whole thing. And pa- you know, there was kind of a pack of kids that, uh, you know, we'd sort of roam around town. I mean, I'm sure we didn't get more than a block or two from the hotel, but uh, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of fun looking to see if you could find some spent shell casings or something, and it wasn't like anybody was holding us hostage. You know, as a parent, I don't know how comfortable I would be with, you know, my little kids running around that kind of situation now, but, you know, parents weren't as overprotective then. I remember one night, I don't know if this was what happened or just what we were told, but one night they told us, well... The army decided to eat your dinner, so you
0: guys have cheese sandwiches tonight. <laughs> so, <laughs> But it was a very serious situation, and as negotiations drew on, another plane, BOAC 775, was hijacked and landed at Dawson's Field. This hijacking was done in an attempt to persuade the British government into releasing Layla Khaled, one of the unsuccessful hijackers we heard about earlier. What were the hijackers themselves like? Uh, so we were only... Uh,
1: in their custody for probably about less less than 24 hours but people were very polite and friendly they were trying to you know this was this was a political act and this was also you know obviously pre-9-11 this is when people were hijacking planes to cuba and you know it wasn't such a big deal
0: skyjackings were so common in fact that in the year before 1969 34 planes were hijacked and rerouted to cuba alone
1: the, the deal was that we would not leave the country pending a resolution. I mean, we felt like we were under the protection
0: of the Jordanian army, who seemed, you know, seemed okay. On September 9th, the United Nations Security Council put out another resolution, Resolution 286, demanding the release of all the passengers. The situation had gained international attention. The United States debated aerial attacks or invasions. Britain decided they were going to negotiate with the hijackers. But after the PFLP blew up the planes on September 12th—don't worry, they evacuated everyone first— the United Kingdom decided they would release Leila Khaled in exchange for the hostages. By September 13th, further deals had been reached, and everyone except for those with ties to Israel were free to go.
1: And at that point, the remaining hostages were released to the hotel, which included my father.
0: We got into buses, and I think they even put our luggage in it. I definitely remember that our big luggage was not lost.
1: The next morning, we flew to Cyprus, then home, and it was, you know, it was like a party scene on the the flight out.
3: After a week, he returns to the class, and the teacher says... John, tell us about your experience of being hijacked. And I'm all waiting for him to say, oh, we were so scared, we were terrified, da-da-da. But instead, John gives this very interesting, rather intellectual description of what's going on in the Middle East. (laughs) And nothing about being scared. And I'm just sort of looking at this guy saying, huh, (laughs) who is this guy? I was just really surprised that, you know, his analysis of of the whole situation. And now we're married.
0: Thankfully, within two weeks, all the remaining hostages had been rescued or freed, and the only death throughout this entire ordeal was Patrick Argeo, one of the hijackers. That said, this was kind of the last straw for Jordan, and after the Palestinians declared the city of Urbid liberated, King Hussein put the country into martial law. The following civil war would result in somewhere between 4,000 to 10,000 casualties, mostly Palestinian civilians. King Hussein emerged victorious,
1: and that's kind of the Jordan that, you know, he's no longer alive, but that's kind of the Jordan that exists today.
0: Well, that's pretty much it for the Dawson's Field hijackings. And as always, thanks for listening. Things You Don't Need to Know is a Hyper Object Industries production. The show is hosted and written by me, Ari Kagan, and produced by Harry Nelson, Claire Slaughter, Jordan Allen, and also me. Additional help from Daniel True Amatis. Our executive producer is Adam McKay. If you like things you don't need to know, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you leave a review, I would really appreciate it. Um, It it helps the show out, puts us up in the rankings. If you don't leave a review, well, then I'll just hijack your phone and leave a review for you. So, you know, just, it, it would help me out, honestly, twice. So if you're nice, you'll do it. Whatever. I always feel like Roman doing these things. It's a good show. You should watch that while you wait for another episode. Anyway, see you next week.